Father, we do lift up Connie and remind us to pray for her, and especially as her surgery gets closer. And we do echo her prayer that you enable her to even have an open door of ministry where she will be cared for, but we also commit just her health that you would deal with all of those issues as well. And we do anticipate your your miraculous work in her life as she desires to just simply serve you and that you remove this hindrance from serving you and enable her to even broaden her ministry. And we know, Lord, that everyone here has unspoken needs and requests, whether they be with relationships or with just personal issues that everyone deals with, just commit them to you. We desire to also be in fellowship with you and not with uh, any guilt, as we talked about conscience last time, or issues that would hinder us from hearing and reading and understanding your word. We may freely have fellowship. May we confess any sin that needs confessing that would hinder that, and that we would, in fact, maximize the benefit that you have provided for us and the opportunity that you've given us to freely look into your words. We pray all these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the book of Romans this morning, and I want to focus on privileges that God granted to the Jewish people. And there's some definite applications we can draw, and the main application that we'll see is that we have privileges as well, and in those privileges, God desires us not only to be blessed by them, but to also bless others with the privileges that he's given us. So in the city of Rome, not too much different in terms of issues, in terms of needs, as what we would experience at any period of time, because this book is inspired. So we see a lot of things in our culture, in our lives, that Paul addressed 2,000 years ago to the people in the city of Rome. So it's as if the book were written today, and it is that God wrote it to us as well because of the inspiration of Scripture. And just to introduce the passage that we'll get to now, we still have to look at verse 16, which is part of the other passage, but I read a story of a woman. It was just a brief little story. Sophisticated, thought she was... Not only sophisticated, but uh, probably more beautiful than what she actually portrayed, or maybe someday she was. And she was going to have a photograph taken of her, and she asked the photographer, would you please make sure that you are careful in what you do, because I want you to do me justice. And the photographer said, well, madam, it is not justice you need, it's mercy. (laughs) Sometimes we have a higher opinion of who we are, and that was certainly the case of the Jewish people in the first century. They, they knew that they were privileged. They knew that God had bestowed on them special blessings, and as a result of those blessings and those privileges, they assumed that it included a relationship with him. It included salvation. Now, all that was available, but it was not always appropriated. In other words, the faith that was required to receive the benefits of those privileges were oftentimes not there. 
And in fact, the people that uh, Jesus had the most conflict with were the leadership of the Jewish people of the first century. So we're going to look at some of those privileges. But before we do that, let's finish up verse 16 in chapter 2. And in that portion, we're looking at principles of judgment. We've already seen that God bases his judgment on truth. Everyone assumes that somehow it'll be fuzzy on judgment day and everything that we've done is forgotten, perhaps. But an omniscient God that knows absolute truth is not going to forget anything but remember every detail. So that puts everyone in jeopardy, including Jewish people. So he doesn't forget Based on the fact that no one escapes, commonly in our culture, people think, well, automatically you just go to heaven, and God just says, okay, I'm a gracious God, you are welcome to come in, and people today in our culture tend to omit the idea of accountability, but uh, the Bible is clear that no one escapes judgment, including Jewish people. And certainly it's based on performance or conduct on what we do that will be evaluated because the, the life is not simply knowing things, but it is actually applying and doing them. So conduct is part of the process of judgment. We've been looking at impartiality. It doesn't depend on heritage, the Jewish people thought, and we're going to see that that was one of their privileges because of their heritage that was kind of an automatic that God overlooked many things, but God bases judgment on impartiality. That's 9 through 11. And I see somewhat related to that based on revelation. And the idea with revelation is this idea also of privilege. Some have more revelation than others. So how does that fit in? Well, if God is impartial, you might have the idea that That means everyone is judged on the same basis. Well, impartiality also means that the more that you receive, the more accountable you are and the more liable to judgment. And since the Jewish people, remember this section deals with showing them that they are lost and that they are in need of the salvation that Paul's going to describe later on in the book. So to describe that, he has to show them that they are liable to judgment because of the fact that God judges on truth and no one escapes, not even the Jews, based on conduct, based on impartiality. In fact, the Jew first, because the Jew has more privileges and based on the revelation. So we looked at the passage that deals with the Mosaic law that Jewish people have, and you might say, well... The Gentiles don't have the Mosaic Law. Does that mean they escape? Well, it's inescapable. But there's another law that is the basis of the Mosaic Law, a universal law, and we spent some time looking at the moral law, and Gentiles will be judged on the basis of it. So, verse 11, we have principles of impartiality. This is another chart. This is just as verses 11 through 16. I broke up that portion there. Judgment based on Revelation, that's verse 12. We have the principle laid out. So don't get mixed up here. The principle is if people can perform according to the perfect holiness of God, then they may, in fact, receive justification. He's not saying justification is by works. He's just laying out a principle or almost a hypothetical, you could even say, 
But if they fail, then they're judged by either law, that's Jews, or a moral law, that's Gentiles. So we have Jews with law and Gentiles 14 through 15 without law. So, Ray, we really do have in Jesus Christ one who came and perfectly fulfilled yes. all the principles of the Mosaic law. Exactly. And so, therefore, it was a possibility. So you have, you know, it's your little switch. Either you are this, completely perfect, or bamo, you're completely imperfect, even if you fail on one minute point. Yeah, uh, James passage, right. If you fail in one point of the law, you violate the whole. Good. So Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, and that's what he's going to stress throughout. It's based on the fact that someone, in fact, did, and he paid the penalty. And it requires that someone that is sinless, that didn't have to die for their own sin, someone that is sinless died on behalf of us, because since we sin, we have to die for our own sin. So we looked at those passages, and we didn't quite make it to verse 16, where he's going to kind of sum things up. When, and I think he's looking forward, the day of the Lord, so we'll talk a little bit about it, when there will be a final judgment, and it'll be based on the gospel. And it's always based on the gospel, where the gospel message, the message of God's salvation, whether people have responded to it or not. So that's verse 16. So let's take a look at it, and then we'll move on to the next. And by the way, there's a new outline sheet that looks at the beginning in verse 17. So based on Revelation 12 and 13, deals with the Mosaic Law, 14 and 15, with this moral law, chapter 2, and verse 16, based on the revelation of the gospel. So verse 16, on the day... When, in fact, the transition here is when, you could put it in English, when on the day, when is the introductory word that introduces this subordinate clause. So it's still part of 14 through 16. It's the last part of the sentence. There's a comma there. So when, according to my gospel, and there's the key word there or key phrase there, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, there's a few things that we want to look at, so I've kind of broken these out. The first thing, kind of the major concepts of 2.16, the day, what is that day? On the day. Now, it probably refers, this is probably an abbreviated reference to the what's very common in Scripture, the day of the Lord. Seeing that phrase? Now, this is an example. If you look up all of the references to the day of the Lord, it's very common in the Old Testament. The book of Joel, a lot of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, speak of this day of the Lord. I think it's a broad concept that doesn't refer to one specific 24-hour period of time. This is different from Genesis 1, the stress that we make in Genesis 1, the days of creation, There's a lot of detail in the text. The context seems to indicate that Moses is describing six creative, what we would describe as solar days. The word day in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in some context, and when it says day of the Lord, if you study the context, it refers to when God 
intervenes in history. That intervention, particularly at the end of the age, is not just one day. It includes a whole group of events, but it's looked at as God intervening and doing a work on earth. Now, in some context in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was very particular and specific and dealt with the nation of Israel in their history. But you have to look at the context for some of those. But in general, the day of the Lord refers to the period of time far in the future of Israel and even in the future from our time frame. The day of the Lord is that future, we would call it the eschatological or prophetic period of time where God is going to intervene very directly. And the main thing that he's going to do is bring judgment. That's the day. And this context, I think, is referring to that. But I think it's more specific. It's dealing with a particular judgment of the day of the Lord. So it can include that seven-year period of time that we looked at in the Olivet Discourse, and there's some specific passages. In fact, the majority of the passages refer to that period of time as the day of the Lord. Great tribulation. It can refer to the specific second coming of Christ, specifically, where God directly comes to earth, Jesus Christ, returning. And by the way, there's even passages that refer to the day of the Lord that include the first coming, because God intervened to bring salvation directly. So this, you have to look at the context very carefully. Now, it may be a little bit broader, but I think it includes, in this context, the great white throne, that's the final judgment, final evaluation. That's Revelation chapter 20. Does that make sense? So if it includes this whole span of time, there are even a few passages that refer to the millennial kingdom as the day of the Lord. So you have to study the context. So it's a kind of a broad term that can include different aspects. And it's not just one day, but it includes all of these events that most of them are clustered together where the idea is it's the day of the Lord because it's that time frame where God directly intervenes in world history in a very visible and a very dramatic and in some cases a very severe way. That's the day of the Lord. So think of it as God intervening in history to accomplish what he had prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15 ultimately and in a final way dealing with the issue of evil. Does that make sense? That's the day of the Lord. So in this context, at least the great white throne, if not a broader concept, particularly judgment. So on the day when, now he's going to make it more specific, according to my gospel, God will judge. So it's talking about a day of judgment. According to my gospel... There is a gospel message that reveals the plan by which mankind can come into a saving relationship. Now, when we speak of the gospel message, particularly, not the gospels, because the gospels, those books, the four books that we call the gospels, they contain this message 
and they focus in on the main element of the gospel message. The gospel message is the message by which men come into a saving relationship with God. Was there a gospel message in the Old Testament? Yes. In fact, Genesis 3.15, all the way back at the fall of mankind, theologians call that what? What do we describe that as? Remember, I've used that Latin word. Somebody's got it. Linda? Protevangelium. Okay. And all that means proto, prototype, first, gospel in there. The first announcement of the gospel is that God is going to deal with the issue of evil and he's going to crush Satan who introduced evil into the human race. But it's going to cost him. It's going to bruise his heel. That's the first announcement of the gospel. At least theologians see it. And I I mean, I agree with it. It's not clear, but as we progress through Scripture, that message becomes clearer and clearer. And when we come to the New Testament, that gospel message is that all mankind is lost, is sinful, is unrighteous, and there's no way to reach the holiness of God. There's no way to get to heaven, if you will, apart from perfection. So you can't perform. And I've used the illustration. It's like an Olympic swimmer. And you might swim from Los Angeles to Catalina Island. And even that's risky. But try swimming from Catalina Island to Tokyo. It's impossible, physically impossible. So also it's spiritually, once we have sinned, to reach perfection because we've already blown it and we are conceived in sin. So the only way is not by efforts, it's not like trying to swim, it's by taking an airplane from Los Angeles to Tokyo. In other words, we need to be carried along. And it's only in that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that men enter into a relationship with God. That's the gospel message. All the Old Testament anticipates that. The people before Christ anticipated and believed that God would ultimately deal with sin, and it wasn't clear, although there are a lot of passages that indicate that it was going to include a sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system. And Isaiah is very clear that there's going to be an individual that dies for people that they may have access. So it's according to the gospel that men will be evaluated. Whether they believed in it, and by the way, that's how we receive that salvation is by belief, not by works, apart from works, and that's what the book of Romans is going to make clear. So it's going to be according to my gospel. That's the ultimate revelation. That's what the Mosaic law was pointing towards. That underlies the moral law. In other words, we're all accountable. There is a right and wrong, and conscience tells us we're guilty. We have violated that law. And we are utterly dependent on what God has provided and what God has done. That's the gospel. So on that day, that future day, when God, according to that gospel, will bring about that judgment, that evaluation as to whether men have accepted him or not, or accepted his provision. So the day is the great white throne. The gospel is the good news of God's salvation. You can summarize it that way. And how men enter into a relationship, it's by faith and faith alone. 
Judgment is based on conduct, and we all fail. We all get an F. Salvation is based on faith and faith alone, apart from conduct or apart from works. Is that clear? All right, that's the gospel. God will judge, and notice the secrets. Nothing's hidden. Omniscient God sees right through all of the externals, sees right to the heart. The secrets of men. So we could summarize that one. The idea of judging, there's crino. We've seen that throughout. The basic word of God judging. Sometimes it's even condemnation. And I think what's in view there is final judgment. And if you want just one verse there, it's Matthew 25, 41 through 46. That's in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus describes this final judgment. There's a couple of other passages in that same Olivet Discourse. And the secrets, kruptos is the Greek word there for you Greek students. It's things that are hidden, things that are not easily observed. And sometimes it's translated secrets and a couple of other verses there. In fact, we ought to look up Psalm 139. Would somebody get that one? And 1 Corinthians 14.25. Who wants to do either one of those? Got the Psalms there? Somebody got 1 Corinthians... 14.25. You got it? Yeah. Psalm 139. Uh, read the first four verses there. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. Now, this is the psalmist, David, and he's acknowledging that God has searched him. In other words, knows everything about him because he's an omniscient God. And notice how he's expressing himself in that context. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, but all together. In other words, the knowledge of God, this is a psalm that's poetic, so he's just over and over emphasizing. In other words, each line is a synonymous, synonymous with the next one, over and over in different ways, emphasizing the idea that God knows Everything about us, our getting up, our going to bed, our inner thoughts, everything. So that's the thought there. Go ahead and skip to, what is it, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my heart. Okay, so he's opening himself up to the Lord. In order to cleanse, in order to have a relationship with God. So... You see this all over Scripture, that God knows all things. He's omniscient, can't hide anything. And there's not going to be anything hidden in final judgment. you got 1 Corinthians 14.25. The secrets of his heart are slow, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God certainly among you. The secrets are exposed, and all of that will happen. It's almost like there's a hard disk a spiritual hard disk that records everything. And no one destroys the hard disk. You don't have, what is it, bleach bit. The hard disk has every a record of everything that uh, everyone has thought, everything that everyone has done, and that is going to come under evaluation, the secrets. So if, if that's true then, but as for a believer who goes before the Lord... Since it is true. Yes, since it is true, I'll use that. Since it is true for a believer who goes before the Lord and confesses sin, 
then there is a uh, bleach delete, bit. A bleach bit that does go through so that we do not have to face it. Yes, the bleach bit is the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Wipes everything clean. Absolutely. Praise God. Exactly. Praise God. But the unbeliever is in view in this passage. Okay. And the unbeliever does not have access to that. The only access is by trusting in what Christ is. But Christians need to know how powerful confession is. Absolutely. The Lord, that, we've put, that we have gone and appropriated his cleansing so that past guilt does not continue to haunt us and nip at our heels and right. all the rest. Because when we have truly gone before him and sin, we have his assurance that it has been dealt for finally at that moment and will not come Finally and completely. Because right. a lot of times that just hangs over people. Oh, I was so bad one time. And, I mean, well, and there's ongoing sin because we're still sinners. Right. But in the court, the ultimate court of God, and we have legal language here still, the issue of evil and sin for the believer is settled once and for all. That's taken care of. That's forgiveness of sin. Which is why we need to be in confession on a daily basis. Well, I'm going to get to that. But that's justification. Justification is the legal decision that's on the books. It's on the record. We call that positional. But since we're still sinners, we have ongoing sin. And 1 John 1, 9 is to keep that fellowship, that relationship. Because our continued sin breaks that fellowship. has nothing to do with eternity. That's settled once and for all. But ongoing sin, and this should be something that we think about every day, if there's anything that blocks, that's why I pray it in our opening prayer, that we be in fellowship, that's to maintain the fellowship. The analogy, and it's a biblical analogy, is we are adopted into the family of God. Nothing breaks that adoption. In other words, that is permanent, that is settled, that is complete, that's salvation. But we can, like in any family, we can, you know, children disobey parents. They're not thrown out of the family, but there is a tension there, and sometimes there's an anger there, and there's a broken relationship, and what the parent wants is the child to say, yes, I'm sorry, I will try harder, I will do my best, or whatever, to restore that relationship with the parents, the father Similar in a spiritual sense, our sin does the same thing. It breaks fellowship, and when we confess, First John 1, 9, it restores the fellowship. We're not thrown out of the family of God. That's settled, make clear. But it does hinder relationship, and that's why we have the ongoing. This is illustrated by Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Remember, he, Peter says, no, I don't want you to touch my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. And then Peter says, well, wash all, you know, give me a bath. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you've already had the bath. In other words, you, you just need to clean your feet. It's an illustration of the, the ongoing daily walking in dirt that needs cleansing. That's the ongoing relationship. But this is dealing with the ultimate. And when the unbeliever stands before the great white throne... All of the secrets of his heart are exposed and he is going to be shown, whether Jew or Gentile, that he does not have a relationship and the judgment will 
basically send him to eternal separation. And it's through Christ Jesus. That's the only way. It's through what Christ has done. Now, he doesn't expand upon it here because he's yet to deal with it in the rest of the book. After he shows all mankind that there's no other way, we're still in the section called condemnation. Do you notice that on your outline sheet? Capital A there, the condemnation of all. That's the section we're still in. So he's not expanding on that, but it's through Jesus Christ. Okay? So Jesus is the judge. And John 5.22, all judgment from the Father has been given to Jesus Christ. And that's also expanded in John 5.27 and 28. So Jesus is the judge. He's not only the Savior, and by the way, he's not only the Creator, Colossians 1, but he's also the Savior, and in the future he will be the judge, the deity of Christ in the things that he will do and has done. So that's verse 16. So we've looked at the predicament of the self-righteous. We've completed the principles of judgment. Now we're going to look at uh, 217 through 29. Now I'll just get into the first part of it, and we'll get further next week. This is the proof of the Jews' guilt. He's given them because they need to know these principles. They need to know the importance of the gospel message that we've just looked at. They need to know that they're not going to escape the judgment. They need to know that God is going to deal with them first, Jew first, because he's impartial. They need to know that it's based on truth. They need to know that it's based on their conduct. And on every level, this should awaken with them, wow, I'm in trouble. And now he's going to bring it home in verses 17 through 29. He's going to prove, and then he's going to deal with their objections or their protests in chapter 3, 1 through 8. Obviously, we won't get that far today. So, we're going to look at the proof of the Jews' guilt, and they had a higher view of who they were, particularly with respect to their relationship with God himself. So, he's going to show and point out very clearly a failure of inconsistency, and that all hangs together, and uh, we don't want to get lost in it, so let me try and summarize it for you. 17 through 24, I put together another little chart, and as we go through it, I'll keep reviewing this chart. But the essence of it, from verse 17 to 24, is they are inconsistent with what they have been provided with. There's an inconsistency there that proves that, in fact, they're guilty before a holy God. So the problem is a problem of inconsistency. That's 217 through 24. And I'm going to break it down into two parts. The first part, and we'll get partly into this, he's going to lay out the tremendous privilege that the Jews enjoyed. And this was their emphasis. In fact, he is taking what they would outline as the reason why God is going to say, well, you're in, you're in the group, you're the elite, you're privileged. They were privileged, but it did not mean that it was automatic that they had a free ticket, if you will, into God's presence or into what we normally call heaven. So he's going to lay out in 17 through 20 privileges. And then beginning in 21, he's going to evaluate their performance, 
Because they were privileged, God expected certain things from them. How do they measure up? So that's verse 21 through 22. And whoever said it, not so good. Exactly. Okay. And then what he's going to do is show the product. In other words, what is the end product of their inconsistency? That's verses 23 through 24. And we'll break it down and look at the first part. And we won't even get to verse 20 this morning, but we'll start on it and outline it and give you some uh, applications that we can draw from it. Okay, so I break it down into two parts, two more parts, 17 and 18, that pertain to them personally. And then uh, the second group are going to deal with basically the privilege that God had given them in relationship to others. So personal privileges, and he starts out basically even with their heritage as Jewish people. So it's very clear he's dealing with Jews here. And basically, the passage goes further, but you might say that there's at least a stopping point with the first question that you can see at the bottom there, verse 21, you see the question mark at the end. So I've included it all. And it all is, it's one of those long sentences of Paul that you need to break it down in order, otherwise you get kind of get lost in it. So he starts off, but if you bear the name Jew, and if is what kind of, what it introduces what kind of a clause? It's a conditional clause or it's dependent. So that's not the start of the independent clause. It's if, and he's going to go down with a series of if this, if this, if this doesn't use the if every time. It just introduces it all. If you bear the name Jew and and if you rely upon the law and if you boast in God and if you know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and if you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, if you are a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of truth, all of that is a subordinate clause or a series of parts of it. And we don't get to the independent clause till you get to verse 21. Therefore, you, and then you have a subordinate clause, who teach another, you, do you teach yourself? And it's more related to the last part there where they're uh, correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature and all that. You teach yourself. So a lot of little parts there, a series of them. But the essence is he's confronting them. And he uses a typical technique in the Greek culture, and you might even say amongst the Jewish culture, in that he asks a series of questions. He's probing, kind of a diatribe, you might call it, where he's asking them these probing questions. And what he's doing by outlining these questions is basically saying, this is how you view yourself, because they would answer yes to all of these questions, and then he's going to stick the dagger in and say, okay, you're inconsistent with who you are. See the essence of what he's, saying, what he's doing in this passage? So let's take a look at the details. First of all, but if. And in Greek, there are different conditional clauses. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but there's a first-class condition. This is a first-class condition. In the Greek language, it's very clear a first-class condition assumes the premise. In other words, if you bear the name Jew, and you do, 
And you would agree, that's the kind of if of this. So every one of these is if you da-da-da-da-da, and you do, and you would agree to this, then he's going to get to, and there's not a then in there, it's a question instead. Then why are you not living up to it is the point that he's making. Why have you fallen short of it and therefore you stand condemned? That's the point he's making. He's proving to them by asking them a series of questions, just like a parent. You know, a parent knows very well what the child did. But the parent asks the question, for what reason? Teaching. To to bring the child's awareness to the point that, yep, I did it, I shouldn't have done it, I'm wrong, rather than all the excuses that the child will come up with. So that's the method that is using. It's a standard method that was used in the Greek culture, and parents sometimes do the same thing, and it's, a, it's effective. He doesn't just point the finger and accuse them. What he does is he brings these questions into their thinking so they accuse themselves and realize, yep, you're right, I'm guilty. Okay? So if, in the first one, if you bear the name Jew, and the if, yes, you are a Jew, you do have the bloodline, you have the name that is associated with the Jewish tribes, you have the lineage, and on my outline sheet I summarize it in terms of they have a distinguished heritage, and amongst the Jewish community this was a distinguished heritage because this identified them with Abraham, it identified them with the Abrahamic covenant, it identified them with God himself. So this is a distinguished heritage. So you bear the name of Jew, and I'm going to lay out the privileges here of that community. They have a distinguished heritage as Jewish, and they were proud of it. And they thought the heritage meant that they would be omitted from judgment. Now, he's already laid out that they're not, but he's bringing it home. He's bringing it in such a way that they would have to agree, okay, I'm depending on that heritage. And in fact, what they were trusting in is they were trusting in their bloodline, not with a relationship with God. Now, there's a application you can draw here, particularly with, with children. This is very common. If you've raised your children in the church, and if you as parents are Christ, both Christians, Sometimes in the thinking of children, they think because of that background, because of that heritage, it's automatic that they, in fact, also are Christian. That's why Jesus says you must be born again, and that's why Paul says that there is a need for regeneration. In other words, every individual has to trust for himself and personally and individually receive salvation. So children are not automatically into the family of God. It's an individual thing. And sometimes adults grow up thinking, well, I was raised in the church, and they don't come to the realization even as adults. Now, I don't think that's true of any of you, but this was true in the first century amongst the Jewish people. I'm Jewish. I'm in the bloodline of Abraham. That's enough. I can live however I want to. I don't have to regard anything else. I'm automatic. And he's pointing out that that's not the case. So they trusted in the bloodline and not the relationship. 
The second thing, you rely upon the law. Tremendous privilege. God granted the Mosaic law. They had special revelation. They had what nobody else had. They had the experience at Mount Sinai where God verbally spoke. They heard him. Audibly, they heard God speaking. The mountain shook. The nation of Israel was given revelation that no one else was given. And God entered into a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. And the people after Sinai had the privilege of the law. And they read it every Sabbath. And it was there. It was available. It uh, was part of their background and culture. But where did they fail? They trusted in the possession of the law as a community of God, but they omitted the doing of it. And is that danger still present among us by way of application? Yeah, we can, you know, we have the Bible. You have your big Bible on your coffee table. You have to sometimes blow the dust off of it. But you have it, and it's available, and you sit in church and you hear it, but uh, does it have an impact on you? And in the Jewish community, this is what Jesus confronted more often than not, their hypocrisy. They knew it. It was in their heads, but they did not live it. And he's talking to the unbeliever now. They had the Torah. They had the law. They had the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh. They had the whole thing, but they did not apply it. In other words, they didn't look at the sacrificial system and realize that it condemned them and they needed the ultimate sacrifice. And particularly in the first century, Jesus had announced that he was the sacrifice and they rejected Jesus. Jesus points this out in John five forty-five. but do you not think I will accuse you before the Father? This is Jesus, probably alluding to the great white throne here. But he says, I don't even need to. Your accuser is Moses. In other words, if you'd open it up and read it, Moses and the law condemns you. And they were prideful that they possessed it. And Jesus is saying, Moses will accuse you on whom your hopes are set. In other words, their hope was simply, oh, we have the words of Moses. We have the Bible. We have the Old Testament. Well, why don't you read it? And you're going to find out that Moses accuses you. Moses is going to show you that you are lost. And not only that, the third thing, you boast in God. We're the people of God. We're the the people that God has called to himself. We have tremendous privilege. And we'll stop with verse 17. So the third thing is they have ultimate access to the creator of the universe. They have access. But that access is not automatic. They must appropriate what God has provided for them through, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and now in the first century, what God has provided in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not automatic. They have ultimate access, but it's not immediate and not automatic access to God himself. And where did they fail? They trusted that God was theirs. In other words, we're the people of God. We belong to him. We own him almost. And it's the Gentiles that don't have God. So they alone have God rather than realizing, well, maybe they don't have God individually as well. So he's just driving these home. And that's probably a good place to stop for today. There's, what do I have on the outline sheet? Two more there. 18, there's two more in there. 
And then he's going to, in 19 through 20, he's going to give privileges that they had with respect to others. And we'll pick up there next next time. Connie. Trusting that God was there is a big message. Yes. Because he, God was, the Jews didn't, didn't want to go and talk to those parents. So. In fact, he fled because he was afraid that God might be merciful to the uh, Ninevites. And he didn't want that. He, you know. God, you, you belong to us. We don't want to mess with those Ninevites. Yeah, good and, point. And the book ends with him sitting there. And He's still ang- angry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me give one more scripture here, and then we'll close on it. In Jeremiah 9.24, the idea of boasting in God, but notice what Jeremiah says. Jews would be familiar with this. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands... That's understanding and knowing God, and knows me. In other words, that's an intimate, personal relationship. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God delights in us knowing, and the knowing there is in a personal relationship knowledge. The understanding, you could identify as more, okay, I, I have the intellectual knowledge in my head, but God delights in us knowing him as a personal savior and relationship. Who wants to close for us? Tony. I have you so much for this proof about being able to know the Lord, Virginia Marie, and our sister-in-law, Debbie and Rick. Neither of them are saved. He is dealing with camp now, and it looks like it's going to be a short prognosis. Um... But Father, this entire show you that they were Lord hand and to do in mind. We lift you faithful, continue to um, this coming week as you walk.